Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. Uh, there's a new director for Fair Access at OFS. We'll check in on his first big speech. Uh, we've published new research on blended learning and careers that we'll dive into. Uh, IFS says the government is tightening the screws on students and UUK is doing work on drugs. It's all coming up. Because if you were to get a, a group of heads around the table now and said, what's the best way of raising attainment at my year nine students? They're not going to put working with universities in the top five. They're not going to do it. I mean, that's not because universities aren't very good. It's because it's not what they see as a priority. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and learning to live with COVID this week, as usual, three top-flight guests. Uh, in Ealing, Graham Atherton is the director of NEON and the head of the Centre for Inequality and Levelling Up at the University of West London. Graham, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was obviously John's speech, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Ah, excellent stuff. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, in Preston, Zaleika Sheikh is president of the Students' Union at UCLan. Zaleika, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week is our new CEO, Stephanie Hartley, has joined the Students' Union all the way from Wrexham, Glinda. So we're very pleased to welcome Steph on board. Excellent stuff. And in the garage in Enfield, Debbie McVitie is Wonky's editor. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Well, um... Regular listeners will know it's it's going to be it's quite an intense week at uh, Wonky Towers today or this whole week because we're preparing for making sense of higher education and secret life of students. So this week is the week before an event and therefore is entirely highlight free. It's been absolute hell, but it's going to be absolutely amazing next week. So it'll all be worth it. Excellent. So, yes, we start this week with access and participation. There's a new broom at the office for students and he wants shoulders to the wheel, Graham. Apparently so, Jim. Yeah, a lot of shoulder to wheel references in, in this speech today. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it really builds upon um, the minister's uh, thoughts and speech back in November in terms of what John sees as a, a refocusing of widening access. A lot more focus on attainment, particularly uh, younger age groups. I think that's quite interesting, probably worth discussing. We've maybe seen that before. Evaluation, a familiar one there, really. Uh, got some real challenges. Again, something else I could talk about. Uh, and, of course, outcomes, uh, which is something we're used to seeing. Uh, but I guess on the upside for many providers, uh, the variations to the APP is not as much as many people feared, but uh, still more writing to do, I guess, but I was a responsibility for that kind of thing. Yes, let's, uh, before we get into this then, let's have uh, a little listen to uh, a couple of bits from the speech he delivered at the OFS event on Tuesday. Talking to students from across the sector, especially those from disadvantaged and minority backgrounds, I've heard more often than I would like that students feel their providers fell over themselves to bring them into higher education, but interest in their needs trailed off the moment they were through the door. Our data makes clear these are not isolated experiences. Students from disadvantaged backgrounds have often overcome significant obstacles to get to university. It cannot be right that those students' entry to HE is used to polish the laurels of providers who are consistently and persistently not delivering on the quality of teaching and support those same students need to thrive in higher education and succeed after graduation. 
the APP process can do more to prevent this. It is not enough that learners from underrepresented groups can get into college and university. Access is about successful higher education, not just any higher education. Real and enduring social mobility via higher education requires qualifications which are valued by students, employers, and society. I absolutely reject any suggestion that there is a trade-off between access and quality. If providers believe the regulation of quality justifies reducing their openness to those from families and communities with less experience of higher education, or who have traveled less common, often more demanding routes to reach them, they should be ashamed of themselves. Debbie, uh, some challenging gauntlets thrown there. Yeah, and but but I think I mean the thing that really jumped out at me was that I mean it was quite a politician speech, wasn't it? It was quite you know you know good work has been done, but we can do more, and we all need to kind of get behind this agenda. Um, and you know you know very, very, very inspirational, of course, but. It's actually that a lot of these agendas, as Graham said, aren't, aren't actually all that new. I mean, I remember uh, watching Anna Vigneault's at, at, at um, I, uh, the Institute for Education, as was then, giving evidence to the Brown Review and talking about GCSE attainment being the um, primary uh, predictor of whether someone was going to go into university. And, and likewise, I remember uh, Vice President for Higher Education, Rachel Winstone, in 2012, talking about students thriving, not surviving. Um, as, and, you know, and that was something that, you know, that, you know there, was, there, was, there was a strong agenda around looking at retention. There was, you know, the, all the What Works work um, at the Higher Education Academy. So I think what, you know, and, and I think, you know, the this, this, this speech served a purpose in terms of kind of clarifying, but I think what we really need to look at is kind of, well, why, what's the analysis of the, the what's the theory of no change here? You know, is it, that um, you know, you know, is it really that universities have dropped the ball and, re- and not put the support in place to kind of get 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 winding access students? You know, the, the support they need, and 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 I'm not entirely convinced that that's true. You know, despite the you know the the, the anecdotal evidence that, that that John Blake referenced in in his speech, and it may be true in some cases, but I think there's probably more likely to be perhaps gaps between. Uh, what's put in place and whether it's getting to students and that sort of thing that you know that, that that's the sort of thing that might need unpacking or you know is it that there's still not a good enough analysis of what's needed and that comes through in the evaluation argument but then you know if we've been if, if we have been looking at this for 10 years and more why is that analysis not being done what's the actual reason for that and is it that it's hard is it that the capacity is not there you know what's going to be put in place to change that um or is it that the regulatory regime has encouraged the wrong things perhaps uh, you know as part of the, of the lifting of the student number cap that that would you know then encourage it you know sort of free for all that means that attainment no longer kind of feels like a feels like a priority and i think until that's you know that's really drilled into and it's understood that why progress hasn't been made to the extent that the ofs would like to see on these agendas that it's going to be quite hard to then really make you know really make the, the, the this 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 proposed shift meaningful mm, interesting so like i mean one of the things that's happening here is that you know kind of three different kind of bits of ofs regulation is coming together there's the kind of tef stuff there's the b3 stuff we talked about uh, last week and now access and participation all with this thread of look um, it's really good that universities are getting better at getting diverse students in. And now you've got to make sure that they succeed, they complete, they get to the second year, they complete the course and they get a job. Now, and, and, you know, lots of parts of the sector are saying, well, you know, you've got to take into account the fact that these students have got more challenging circumstances and so on. So, so there's this blame game, isn't there? Is it, is it the responsibility of the sector to fix all of those disadvantages or is it... Or, you know, do, do we just have to accept that students from WP backgrounds, as, as, as are known, uh, you know, are, are, gonna, are not going to achieve as much? You know, wh- where do you sit on that? Yeah, for me, I see universities um, have, you know, continued continue to focus on getting bums on the seats, but they haven't um, been focusing on the support once they're through the doors. And, and we see that, you know, in that first seven weeks is the most crucial time when students either, you know, drop out of, of 
you know, there's, there's course uh, because either the academic challenge um, is, isn't isn't there or um, personal life gets in the way. Um, and, and I think, you know, before they even come, come in through the doors, they don't know if they've even made the right decision to be at the university. And um, it's, it's the university's responsibility to make sure their support systems are in place, that students know who they can approach if they've got a particular issue. Because when that, that first interaction, for example, the lecturer... Um, comes in contact with that student and the student is not getting the right response, isn't getting um, the support they need, they're getting shoved to another support service, they're getting shoved to another another email address and that isn't good enough um, and that is where students are thinking, you know, I'm I'm already low on confidence. These students from widening participating backgrounds, you know, they're coming in with um, low confidence levels already. What are we doing as, as you know, providers, as institutions to to make sure they're, that we're not um, putting them, you know, another step backwards. It's interesting stuff, this, Graham, isn't it? Because, I mean, to be fair to John Blake, he did talk about trying to understand why uh, these, you know, the kind of numbers are the way they are. And also, you know, did did, did, did talk about, um, you know, evalu- actually controversially, actually, the way he talked about evaluation for some people in terms of independent evaluation of, of the sort of stuff that goes on. How has this gone down with what I might call, you know, access and participation professionals around the sector? Probably a lukewarm response is probably the best... Uh best answer Jim I mean I think like Debbie said a lot of things here aren't things we've not seen before I mean the evaluation thing I mean I, it's interestingly this week the day before the speech we do a training course for Neon with uh, those working in access on evaluation and research and I've been doing it for the past three or four years so I had 40 or so people in the room representing you know 40 or so institutions all with some kind of responsibility for widening access evaluation and you know there's a lot of commitment to evaluation. The idea nothing's going on is just, it's not true. What they like to do is point to nice reports produced by some of the charities in the space. It's a lot easier to do. You don't have to go through university structures to do it. Uh, you, it's one shot activity to evaluating. And then you say nothing's going on within the institutions. That's not the case. Certainly, what isn't the case is the kind of evaluation that um, Taser wants them to do, which is randomized controlled trials. They just don't think it's practical. There's a big gap uh, there to think about, which is quite important. On attainment, um, again, I mean, this isn't new either. Like Debbie said, I mean, I think three or four, year, four years ago or so, there was a big drive on this uh, under May's government. And, and I think this is something that's important. But the other actor you need in the space is the Department for Education. Because if you were to get a, a group of heads around the table now and said, what's the best way of raising the attainment of my year nine students? They're not going to put working universities in the top five. They're not going to do it. I mean, that's not because universities aren't very good. It's because it's not what they see as a priority. There's no messages that ever come from DOV about this. I asked the Department of Education years ago, just write to all the heads and say to them, look, why do you work with your universities around attainment? Not sure about that. (laughs) So unless the Department of Education comes into play here and encourages the schools to want to do this, then you're not going to get this attainment raising stuff that John likes to see. Um, There's a lot of time wasted by universities trying to get into schools, so that needs to be broken as well. On the outcome thing, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think certainly, um, I think, as, as I said before, I mean, it's really important that universities offer as much support as possible to those from widening access backgrounds. Uh, and I think a lot need to do more on that. And I think there's a lot of things that we, we, we don't touch upon. You know, we, we're not, we don't want to talk about whether you target students from particular backgrounds when you enter HE. We spent millions of pounds worrying about what polar quintile they're from. The minute they walk through the door, they're like everybody else because we don't want to target them. Whereas in the States, they do that explicitly. Partly because, you know, is it wrong? Should I be ashamed of the fact to come from a council estate when I go to university? 
Well, apparently it's a sting, but it'll come from a council estate. Yeah, Debbie, Debbie, one of the things I've been thinking about, right, is so if in a, obviously OFS exists in its world, right? I mean, that's fine, it's world. <laughs> but in a university, if you are in a department, like, like a subject area that doesn't do very well on these metrics, you might say, well, that's because we do all the heavy lifting on WP, right? And then if you look at a particular student characteristic, uh, that doesn't do very well, you might say, well, that's because they're in subjects where that don't normally lead to fantastic outcomes or are more challenging. There's a, isn't there a danger of this kind of, you know, circular blame game where everyone's kind of pointing at everyone else and, and, and no one gets at what can actually be done to support students to get the three <laughs> outcomes? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think the difference, I mean, it, it, there, is, yeah, there is a sort of sense of, of, you know, some of these things are just so baked in uh, that, you know, nothing can be done. And I don't think that's what people actually intend to say, but it sort of de facto is what they say when they say, ah, well, but, you know, if you look at the, you know, mature cohort in nursing, then obviously it's going to be harder to retain these students. Um, I suppose the question is why? What is it? Um, and, and to what extent do universities have have a point of intervention in that? And I think one of the kind of interesting things about the B3 uh, regime and, and that closer alignment with the access and participation regime is going to be, how do we do this analysis? What, is it, what, you know, what lens do we bring to bear on some of this stuff? Because we are going to have to look at these demographics. We're going to have to look at the subject splits. Um, there's probably going to be an awful lot of wrangling about sample sizes and whether, you know, whether, whether it's valid. But ultimately, it's going to have to come down to, we need to talk to the students. We need to find out what's going on. We need to find out what, why it is that... Um, they are struggling to, you know, whether it's an academic confidence question, whether it's a kind of a pure practicalities question, whether it's a financial question. And I mean, and everything that we were, we're actually uh, coming up with some research next week, uh, which suggests it's probably all of those. Um, and, they're, and, they're, and they're interacting in really complicated ways. Um, so, it, And this is where I think the sort of... It can get a bit complicated when you start saying, well, we just need to understand what works, don't we? Because actually, of course, what works is going to be a little bit different for each student. Um, and that's where I think... You know, you have to have some really hard conversations about kind of tolerance levels and uh, the limits of universities' capability to to, to influence um, and the sorts of things that are going to make the most impact. Um, and that's when it gets, you know, it's less about kind of saying, well, we're just following the science. And it's much more about saying we're making decisions about students' lives. And I think that's where people need to be really prepared for the more difficult conversations. Mm. So, Laika, there's, there's, there's quite a bit that kind of students themselves can contribute to this, right, through you know, kind of activities or through their students' union. And- That's the bread and butter of what we do, you know, our student voice system, our rep system, you know, get, getting students involved in clubs, societies, volunteering, helping out in the local community. We know that students, you know, from, from research, students who get involved in, you know, student union activities um, are more likely to complete their degrees, end of really. Um, and those students that, you know, don't engage with us, they, they do struggle because they're not forming those friendships and they're not forming those, those connections with other students. Um, Uh, And we know, you know, especially loneliness um, has been a big thing, um, you know, throughout the pandemic. Students need to have that support system in place. Yeah, interesting stuff. And and, and Graham, just before we uh, uh, move on this, I guess the other big question, the kind of zoom out question is, you know, I don't think there are many people in higher education that don't think that in principle, supporting uh, raising attainment in schools is is a kind of bad thing. But, But should university tuition fee income be spent directly on raising attainment in schools. Isn't it a kind of odd transfer from, you know, direct state expenditure on schools into, you know, asking students to get into debt to raise attainment in schools? Isn't that weird? It is a bit. I mean, I guess what you might be seeing here, though, I think, Jim, is that kind of slight uh, decoupling of what we might describe as widening access work, which is supporting students from 
IBS Backlog Centre HE, which I think a lot of students would see that as, uh, I think research has shown, as a, a legitimate use of, of uh, student income to something slightly separate, which is around university support and attainment, not necessarily to go to HE. See, I think what worries me about the underlying trend here is do the government, I think we talked about this before on the site, took it a lot of times, don't we? Do the government really want more students and wider access backgrounds to go to HE? He wants more to succeed in HE. Do you really want more to go? I think that's what came through a little bit in the minister's speech back in November. There's also talk of general IAG for students, regardless whether they go to HE or not. That didn't emerge in John's speech, but it was talked about uh, back in the end of last year. So you're almost seeing HE acting as some kind of, of support system for schools' general objectives, be that to deliver IAG or attainment, as opposed to working with uh, schools to support students to enter HE. That decoupling is, is probably what you might be seeing a little bit here. And that's where it becomes a bit difficult, not just um, uh, overall uh, kind of almost uh, principle, but almost a practice as well, uh, because the capacity of universities to raise attainment in schools, how you do that is, is going to be a question, uh, really is, across different subject areas as well. Uh, the assumption, again, that you can just send people in, they'll be able to do it, it'll work. It, it, it's not that easy. You don't enter HE necessarily because you want to teach at school level. And to assume that if you can teach HE, you can teach year nine, year eight, is, is probably insulting to those who speak who teach year nine, year eight. It's, like, it's kind of like almost, it reinforces some hierarchical ideas again. You, know, you don't want to be turned, we've spent a lot of years trying to avoid the principle that universities turn up at schools and go, here we are, we're here, we're going to help sort all your problems out, we're universities, et cetera. But we're being all asked to go back and do that thing again. Now, lots of analysis, as usual, uh, on the site. Uh, do take a look. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, this is David Hughes. Um, I wrote a blog for Wonky with Richard Galbert from Sheffield Hallam University on a joint report about university and college collaboration. We did it because we think there's so much more that colleges and universities should do together to meet local need for students, for learners, for communities, for employers. And whilst collaboration is difficult and takes a lot of time and energy and effort, it feels to us as if it should be part of the mission of both colleges and universities. And working together to make things easier for everybody else to be able to navigate what's on offer. So a healthy, long-term, strong, constructive relationship is what we're after. It does need investment of time and energy. It needs government as well, in England particularly, to think about how they join together the post-16 landscape. So this shouldn't be something organisations think about doing. It should be core to their business. Now, next up, over the past few months with our partners, Cortex, we've been researching the views of leaders of learning and teaching. Debbie, what did we find out? Thanks, Jim. Well, we uh, we decided to we wanted to undertake this research uh, with our partners, Cortex, because there's so much there, so many people saying so much about how higher education is going to change in the next five to ten years post pandemic. Um, and you know, we've got an awful lot of insight about what students are saying that they would like to see, and we know we know we know it's a very complicated picture. What we wanted to do was try and understand where the thinking is of the people whose job it is technically to make this sort of change happen. Try and understand um, how the pandemic influenced the strategies, the level of change they expect to see, what their priorities are and what the preoccupations are. So we did a survey of uh, Pro-Vice-Chancellors for Learning and Teaching and Education and, and, and the, you know, those, those, that, those sorts of roles, um, deans of faculties um, and, and heads and directors of learning and teaching and institutions. Um, we received 66 responses, which doesn't seem like very much in fairness, but it does represent the views of 55 institutions um, across the UK. So we think it's quite a credible uh, sample of kind of where thinking is, although we wouldn't necessarily say that it is sort of nationally representative um, in that way. But there was, it, was a, it was a diverse group of leaders, diverse group of institutions. So what we find um, 
Wellbeing and equality, diversity, inclusion are absolutely top of the list in terms of of, of the priorities of the people that we spoke to. Um, and they have a lot of priorities. There's, you know, there's assessment change, there's curriculum change, there's uh, you know, lots lots of things about about using data in a different way and helping trying trying to create a more kind of seamless seamless journey for students. And, and, and there's lots and lots of priorities. But wellbeing and inclusion are, are absolutely kind of front and center for you know more more than four and five of of all the people that we surveyed. Um, there's loads of learning and teaching change expected, and that's especially in the area of adoption of technology. That's the area where the most change is expected in the in the, in the coming years. Um, but also on things like changing cultures, on, on the kind of staffing that would, might be needed to support those changes, um, and, and of course resourcing as well. And I think we, we, we then followed up the survey with some, some in-depth conversations on particular topics, and I won't go into the detail of that because that would be tedious, but you know, go and look at it on the site. Um, but I mean, I think what our, our kind of big takeaway was that leaders are very much still on a journey. It's actually a really complicated picture for them. You know, the pandemic threw up all these possibilities for digitally enabled learning. But it also really exacerbated issues of inclusion and mental health. And, you know, that sort of explains why these are the things that are emerging um, as, as top priorities post-pandemic. And I think leaders are really conscious. There's a real tension here between how do you build this kind of, you know, digitally enabled, very seamless, very integrated kind of learning experience. Um, that, you know, that's a very complex question in itself, especially when you look at the way universities are set up and, um, and you know, the sort of digital capabilities of, of the individuals involved. Um but also, you know, rec- re- respond to students' desire for for connection, for community, um, and it's not just about sort of saying whether it's in person or online. It's about saying how do you how do you build this in a way that that ma- makes sense and is meaningful and that, that gives students the kind of rich rich you know learning experiences that that, that they want to give them. Um, and I think quite importantly, I mean, you know, there's not an obvious solution there. And quite importantly, one of the things that came out of the survey is is that you know leaders are saying they're not getting much help in thinking through those challenges from government and regulators. And you know, you might say it's legitimate for regulators simply to set the bar and say autonomous universities need to deal with this. But actually, I think we are talking about some really challenging cross-sectoral issues here. And I think there's a question as to whether there should be a more in-depth and supportive national conversation around it. Yeah, interesting. Graham, you you work at a university where. Um, quite early on in the pandemic, I think that first summer, there was, there was there were all these adverts saying there's a guarantee about how much in-person teaching there will be, and 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 that, you know, I assume that wasn't just a bit of marketing. I assume you know there was some kind of thinking about you know kind of pedagogy and certain belonging and so on in that. How important is this? You know, hanging around on campus, talking to people, thing, and, and is it important for different sorts of students? Yeah, I think it is for different sorts of students. Also, I think it's different sorts of universities as well, Jim. I mean, different sorts of campuses as well. I find it's very interesting, you know, because for me, I mean, I began my career, you know, working in the north and working at different kinds of campus-based universities. I came to work in London, and now I've worked to more the campus-based, but not in the same way. You know, there's not huge accommodation here. You come in, you learn, you go again. And I think that's a kind of different experience as well. And I think probably that's where some of this is coming from, this idea we have here. And again, I was at the University of Westminster for quite a, a long time based there, and I saw similar trends there, where the university has to work hard here, I think, to try and make sure the students are here because of that whole belonging issue you flagged up earlier on it happens uh, less naturally if you like than when you have a scenario where you have the university and the students at a rather similar physical place um, and I think also you've seen it here I mean I, I observe things you know when I'm here and I'm, I'm back in the institution there are a lot of students coming back in you, you see they're welcoming that contact again how much there should be that level of guaranteed teaching, that's something that, again, has to be discussed. And I think subject areas always differ greatly here. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, always, you know, we go back to the old surveys, don't we, where, uh, you know, we used to, to bash the sector sometimes, you know, very small amount of contact time. Well, that's always been the case in certain humanities-based subjects where it's more independent learning. But here, again, I think there's less in, you'd real of that explicit humanities-based learning, a little more subjects that almost 
require a little more in-person teaching as well. It's going to have to be very much subject-driven as well. Uh, I think if we're going to really understand more of what uh, tackling some of the issues that Debbie flagged up a few moments ago. Mm. So, Laker, I have got a theory on this, right? So, hear me out. <laughs> uh, uh, my working theory, having talked to quite a few people over the past few months, is there's a bunch of students who basically want to be there, right, and who are upset when some of their teaching isn't there. <laughs> and actually, there are loads of students who wanted to be distance learning students, but they were never allowed because we don't give home students in England a maintenance loan if you're a full-time distance learning student. So they found the pandemic quite helpful because suddenly they've been able to study at a distance. And now, of course, because of those rules, we're dragging them back. That's not fair, is it? I mean, you know, do we need to think about distance learning students and on-campus students differently? Or is it possible to please all of the people all the time? I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, for example, at UCLan, we have, um, you know, a really diverse uh, student population and you know for some students they they prefer um studying at home they prefer the online and the flexibility that that's given um but for other students they need to come in they need that separation between their their home life uh, and you know go come into study so you know studying you know at home with um you know their family we heard you know students doing uh, assessments and they had you know family coming over and they said you know I really struggle to you know do my assessment you know with the webcam and everything all the all the kind of recording that that you go under um and and they said that was really difficult is there anywhere I can come on campus to to you know take on my online assessment so we have to be tuned into you know students um and their you know living conditions um but also um understanding that uh you know the services that we have at the university need to be accessible so for example a lot of universities have built these lovely big shiny buildings called student buildings uh where all the student services are are you know situated in and when you go around and talk to the staff in these buildings, they're saying a lot of our students want to opt for um, accessing our services remotely. They want to, so we have staff in buildings in these big shiny buildings, and students are not queuing up to come and see them. What they are doing is saying, "I want to access you via via Microsoft Teams." How do we how do we get here, uh, Debbie? I mean, you know, some of this is it seems to me to be requires us to kind of understand the lives of students in a much deeper way than we perhaps do now. I think that, that I think that's right, but I think it's only one side of the coin. I think the the other side is actually a little bit um, about kind of deciding what kind of university you want to be. Um, and I think that there's something, and I'm, I'm not sure how kind of well forms my thoughts are on this, but I think there's something about the way that digital has entered the space and that it, it often gets talked about in terms of what what, what is in person, what is online. But I think it's, I think it's probably better expressed as, you know, how do we conceive of our student experience, the whole, you know, in the round? And how comfortable are we with saying that we can't actually be all things to all students and we, and we don't, and we don't necessarily, that that's not necessarily what we're able to do. And actually what we should, what we, what we might do better at is saying actually we're this sort of university and this is the sort of experience you will have and it will be digitally enabled in these ways. Which is different from saying some, you know, we expect you we, to access. Some we of can cater for everyone all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, I think this, I think these are the sorts of questions that, and 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 I think part of the challenge there is, is of course, I mean, we talked about in the in the research, we talked about the idea of student expectations as being this. There's some, there was some kind of ridiculously high number, um, sort of over ninety percent of of respondents to our survey said that student student expectations are a significant influencer of change. And of course, we'd asked that question, so you know, you know, more of us were getting it back. But so we, we you know, we, we had the, we had this. 
focus group where we said, well, hang on, what, what are we talking about here when we say student expectations, particularly when it comes to technology? Because, of course, students don't necessarily know what's what's possible. They don't necessarily, they just know that, you know, their lives are complicated and they want it to be easy. So how do you, um, and, and, you know, there's a really interesting point, which is about kind of how much can you, as a, as a university, um, be responsive to expectations and how much do you need to help students ask ask for things that will be helpful to them so one of the one of the one of the experiences from a um a a, 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 a pvc at a at a modern university was that lots of students had said, said during the pandemic yes we want to stay off campus that's going to be very flexible and helpful for us but actually the consequence was which they hadn't necessarily appreciated at the time was that they did feel the sense of disconnection and actually they, they you know they, they perhaps regretted it and perhaps they, they didn't you know in the same way as i think in, in various parts of the sector lots of students took up the opportunities for flexibility in terms of assessment submission but actually as a consequence then didn't you know struggled to then sort of stay on course um, and didn't perhaps progress at the same rate so there's you know, there's real complexity here, and I think you know, and it is for leaders to try and kind of triangulate as well as as well as you know, tr- you know, bring that deep understanding. And I think there's this real, there's this really strong sense that they really, really do want to understand and triangulate all these expectations. But at the end of the day, you're making kind of decisions about 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 pedagogy and about institutional strategy, and that's got to be you know, you've got to be. I think you've got to be quite honest about that. But it's fascinating, this Graham, isn't it? I mean, for for a decade now, we've been worried about you know, kind of collapsing numbers of adults in HE, right? You know, mature students, you know, mature learners, and so on. And the government's solution is, well, let adults take like like little chunks of HE, and we'll make the loan system work in kind of little chunks. But what if what if you know we'd spent a decade allowing rather than blocking, allowing students who study at a distance to access the kind of full time. You know, maintenance loan. What you know, maybe if we'd done that for a decade, we wouldn't have had the collapse. I mean, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, as we know, that the cost of HE was a huge barrier around this collapse. But I think we've always had an issue, haven't we? That um, HE is predicated. We predicate our conversations, don't we, around a certain type of student, a certain age group, a certain mode of study. Um, if, if you're really going to, I guess, you know, bring adults back into the system significantly, you've got to got to think about how you change your assumptions and understandings about what HE indeed really is. Um, maybe you know that the, the move to greater flexibility in the offer and greater online learning could encourage adults to go but you'd also have to have like something alongside that that really focused on their needs and thought about why they wouldn't go re-enter higher education and in particular in what kind of ways to benefit them etc i mean uh, and what sort of adults are talking about as well you know always kind of um interesting me when we talked about you know adults and why they participation because if you looked at actually the breakdown of you know what we call mature students by polar background they were more from lower polar neighborhoods say as polar you know okay polar's got its problems etc than they were from younger students but the majority weren't you know i mean you know you, know, you talk about access if you're not being much about access etc and why they enter etc they're not all the sort of you know you know, coming in from backgrounds that have low participation, etc. But yeah, I mean, certainly, um, I think it is interesting that this might be a way to sort of thinking about this again because this is an area that we're not really moved much forward on really at all. Older students and bringing back into HE in a significant way. If you look at the stats, are quite uh, stunning, really. As you know, I mean, the heavy lifting is done by two or three institutions, really, in that one. Uh, it has improved a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, f- fascinating. Well, and, and look, you know, maybe the government has solved all of this in its response to the Auger Review, which is imminent. So there we go. Now, this week, Universities UK launched work on students and drugs, and Wonky's own Sunday Blake is here to tell us more. I've written for Wonky this week about Universities UK new task force to address student drug consumption on campus. The task force, chaired by Middlesex University Vice-Chancellor Nick Beach, has been established by a partnership between Universities UK, 
Unite Students, Guild HE and Independent HE. It will also include input from a range of government departments, sector agencies, charities and law enforcement. On the site, I've offered some background context on why this work is needed, and I've set out some warnings over the areas that will need careful attention in order to avoid unintended negative consequences. As most welfare officers and student wellbeing staff will agree, this is an issue that needs addressing following a spree of preventable drug-related student deaths in autumn 2020, reports that student drug use rose during the pandemic, and a rise in students with poor mental health, with some of them reporting they are using recreational drugs to manage it. The task force's approach is progressive, evidence-led and embedded into harm reduction. Harm reduction is nothing new, it has been informing policy for decades. However, a directive from UUK may give universities the confidence to face the issue if they've been previously concerned about reputational risk of harm reduction initiatives. These are often portrayed in the media as actively encouraging drug consumption. Of course, the task force will need to consider diversity concerns because working class and black students have always been more likely to be profiled in attempts to tackle drug possession. Even more important, the drug force is also looking to tackle supply, which is a very serious crime. The decision the task force will need to make is whether this is for the university to act on or the police. Now, next up, 32% of students worry they're not good enough or ready for a graduate job, Zuleika. How do we know this? Yeah, this is from some new research uh, that was conducted by Hanshay in partnership with AGCAS, the Institute of Employers, Student Employers and Wonky, uh, who found that 32% of students worry they aren't good enough or ready for a graduate job. And this is rising to 39% of students from less privileged backgrounds. Employers are primarily worried about retaining the graduates they hire, with 71% concerned about rising to this challenge in the decade ahead. For career professionals dealing with the fallout from COVID-19 and responding to students' knocked confidence, this will be a major priority in the coming years. And the confidence, you know, that we see from students, that it drops as they go through the university uh, journey. So in the first year, you know, it's at 33% and they get to the second year, it drops to 31% and their final year, it drops to a low 17%. And so this Careers 2032 report really brings together all that insight from student reps, SU professional staff, employers, career professionals to explore how career support is changing, concluding that deeper co- collaborations within and outside universities will need to be uh, supported by more personalised journeys towards graduate employment uh, for that greater diversity of students. And, you know, students are wanting to work for ethical companies now, you know, they're, they're wanting to, you know, um, you know, the top 40 percent um, find it a top priority to find the work interesting ahead of the salary concerns at 18 percent. So, you know, they're not just going to go for for any type of job, you know, just because the salaries, you know, are high. They want to be in, you know, meaningful work. And that that is something that, you know, we should really keep in mind, um, especially when we're promoting, you know, graduate jobs and, you know, get into a graduate job. I think that rhetoric is quite quite damaging um and you know let's just get the students into jobs that they you know that they really enjoy debbie this is you know obviously reflecting on on item one where john blake is saying you know don't forget once you've got them in you've got to you know get them out and then get them a job this is this 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 report becomes more important than perhaps usual yeah absolutely and and i mean the 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 intention of the report was very much to try and understand how the 
uh, how that field, that professional field of careers advice and support might evolve over the next decade. And, and I mean, I really commend Handshake for bringing together so many partners to kind of try and do that work, because, of course, it's not just going to be down to careers professionals. It's going to be down to university leaders and um, students unions and, 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 and employers, too, to kind of change their, their practice and thinking. Um, and I think I think there, you, you, do, you do see that kind of theme of, of diverse students with diverse needs coming through really strongly. Um, and, you know, I, I had the privilege of, of uh, convening um, some of the student student and SU uh, focus groups roundtable roundtable events as did you Jim and they, what we you know, what was coming through really strongly was that you know different students have so many different needs um, I mean uh, students uh, Zuleika really helpfully brought brought to the roundtable some students from UCLan uh, some international students who were talking about you know some some very you know postgraduate MBA students who of course have very specific um, expectations and hopes from from their university experience and, and you can replicate that you know if you talk about students in the creative arts wanting to know about freelancing um, and so on but as well as that there's also this really strong sense of um, how do I build my confidence about who I am, what I might become, how I develop myself and that, you know, what sorts of careers even might be meaningful for me. And that happens sort of well before you begin to think about what expert advice do I need to kind of connect with different industries, you know, what mentoring might I need for, you know, from professionals in my field. So it's, it's actually, it's a really complicated picture. Um, and the conclusion, which I suppose is very high level, that, that, that I came to in, in discussing all the findings from some of these roundtables is that, you know, we really need to understand that student journey and what that trajectory looks like and, and what, what sort of support students need at different points. Um, and it's not, you know, th- th- there's going to be a really, really important coordinating role for professional career staff, but that's not, it's not going to be sort of something that can just be done, you know, left, left to a career service. It's going to have to be thinking from the very early stages of the student journey at that, you know, the point, the point to which APP plans are looking um, and, and, and weaving it throughout. Graham, there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit, right, in the Augur Review report, remember that years ago, that says, um, why don't we switch some maintenance loan to maintenance grant? It won't cost the Treasury anything because students from disadvantaged backgrounds that would get a maintenance loan have terrible labour market outcomes. Now, <laughs> that's actually, you know, it's quite a miserable paragraph, but but it, 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 it tells us something, doesn't it, about, you know, the kind of attitudes of graduate recruiters and so on. Is, is there, you know, is there stuff that can be done you know between kind of careers professionals and and the kind of world of work to to kind of turn around people's perceptions about what who a valuable graduate is what a valuable university is and so on and so on or is that or are we doomed no that certainly can be done uh, optimistic it can be done i think i mean i think that there has been I don't know. It's interesting to see what work's been done and who's documenting the work. You can see that for certain occupational areas, there has been some recognition of the need for hiring practices to be more diverse, particularly where socioeconomic background is concerned. Uh, Now, whether that's leading through different kinds of universities, that's an interesting point. Uh, and I know that certain university careers departments are keen to sort of have the relationships that allows them to link with certain different kinds of employers. I do think that, um, well, in my experience, there's maybe some distance to go with the careers community in HE and the extent to which they're comfortable with prioritising work with uh, those from different, different backgrounds. Uh, I think that came from a recent article that uh, you had on the site, uh, and it's been my discussions. Uh, you know, we're kind of, I mentioned it earlier on, we're kind of uneasy about some of this. You know, we're talking a lot about outcomes, particular groups. We're talking a lot about how we support those outcomes, a lot about this kind of thing. Yet we're not easy about how we have a conversation about the nature of who those groups are when they're in university. 
yeah. what Targeting their needs are, who they are, yeah. how we talk, how we talk to them. We, we kind of we, we kind of move away from that a bit. It's not the right thing. We can't talk at certain groups. We can't target. We sort of pretend, don't we? We, we? we go with the school uniform principle. We sort of pretend that everyone is kind of you know exactly. kind of that, sorted once they're in. You know, that, like I said before, you know what we do is is we do all this work before they go to HE. You know, hand ringing. I know I've been involved in it about how we target this group, that group. When they enter, we don't talk about that. Now I'm not saying that it's easy to do these kind of things, but it's one of those things. It's kind of a bit taboo. We don't want to talk about it. Uh, and but finally, I guess on this issue of, I really agree with what other contributors said about the differing um, aspirations students have for the futures. But this is something, again, we need to think about for the whole student journey, including prior to HE. What conversations we're having with students entered about their future aspirations? We just kind of it kicks in around second year, third year. And it, oh, well, that's when students are interested in it. Well, it's interested in it then because that's the time they get asked about it. Yeah, yeah, you know, to ask people when they come in what do you want to do when you live or even prior to coming to HE what is your what are you going to get out of the next three or four years what do you yeah. want to get out of this yeah what's, your, what's the plan so like you know there's not lots of money around not lots of time uh, imagine there's kind of an hour of careers capacity floating around we've talked about perhaps you know how it might kind of go and talk to employers we've talked about you know the kind of more traditional stuff about supporting students you know having have an appointment with your careers advisor but there's something there's another debate isn't there here about the curriculum yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, why do we look at, you know, just the curriculum um, on its own, just lecturers, you know, informing that curriculum? Let's get students feeding into that curriculum. Let's get, you know, the career services professionals feeding into that curriculum and let's get employers feeding into that curriculum. For too long, we've had academic, you know, the academics working in silos, professional services working in silos, but they're never collaborating on, on anything. Um, so, you know, you've got your standard career fairs that happen and you're expecting students to come come to those. Um, and then you've got academics holding their own, you know, career career events. And there's never, you know, we know what you're doing or, you, you know, you're promoting us or you're promoting. So I think, you know, if we're going to get... Um, students uh, benefiting from what they're calling now real world learning and benefiting from you know these experiences that are going to set them up for the future we need um we need the the students and yeah employers to to be supportive of you know let's look at a particular a module how are we getting an employer to feedback to students on a, on a particular module um where they can you know get experience get interactions with employers but like you say um you know and then give them feedback and it's about not just bringing an employee to talk about your journey um because you know that that's great you know understanding someone's journey but you know bringing an employer feeding them into a particular assignment particular modules and and seeing the value there and if you're building in that from from day one when students are entering you know uh, entering the uh, their undergrad all the way through to third year they've had that experience and exposure to employers and we're not just throwing them into you know um, a career fair um, where they don't know how to hold conversations where where they're struggling uh, with that confidence building cracking stuff Uh, and uh, uh, Debbie the reports on the site right yeah absolutely Um, we're also going to be doing some follow-up work to really um, tighten up the recommendations and and think about what that kind of roadmap to practice might look like for all the different all the different groups involved and and um and so we're really looking forward to engaging the sector further on that in the months ahead magic now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan welcome to yes but does it correlate to the podcast segment that's run by somebody who's not a complete clown this week's question is really really simple hopefully i've plotted the propulsion of staff who work in STEM subjects at a provider, against the proportion of students who are studying STEM subjects. Do you need a lot more staff to teach a lot more students in a STEM subject? Yes, but does it correlate? Has to be a trick question. 
Given it, otherwise, why would you ask it? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say it doesn't. I'm going to say it does uh, really, really strongly correlate because that just seems to me to be so blindingly obvious. But I know there will be a twist in this tale and I'll look like a mug. Yes, R squared is 0.81, making for a very strong correlation. You can see from the graph in the show notes that if you have an institution that's primarily composed of students studying STEM subjects, you need quite a lot of staff working in STEM to teach and support them. However, this law doesn't always hold up. You can see in some Russell Group and related universities that there's a lot more staff that are working in STEM than you would otherwise expect, I would imagine, conducting research. The data is from the HESA staff and HESA student records of 2019 to 20, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, the Westminster government is quietly tightening the financial screws on students, graduates and universities. Graham, what on earth is going on here? Well, what can we say? I mean, I think you analysed it very well, Jim, on the site. I mean, uh, this seems to be almost a stealth way of reinforcing uh, disadvantage. I mean, I think what's quite important is, again, that the student experience and the way that students can progress and, and how they can achieve is truncated by their ability to engage with the higher education experience, which they can't do if they're, uh, if they're actually experiencing greater financial pressures. Um, what I do think is that where's the potential here to link this with wider cost of living narratives and challenges uh be interesting if labor attempts to do that or if if that can be done because clearly there's an obvious example here of a further pressure upon those uh low incomes and not just of course uh, students from low incomes but of course their families because of course support is also derived from not from parents but from relatives and others as well uh will this be seen as just another individual case just for students will it slip under the radar or can it be made something more prominent that's a bit of question now Debbie, I mean, you know, there's a sense of more, more, more about everything else we've discussed today, right? Students must do more, universities must do more, blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, there's 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 kind of less kind of capacity and money around to, to do it, right? I mean, you know, I was really struck by, you know, the DFE press note on this when IFS published said, um, you know, there's a line in it that said, well, you know, if students are worried about money, they should approach their universities. It's like, yeah, but the IFS says the universities have got less money. So, I mean, it's, it's getting quite tricky this right i mean i think i mean this is this is a sort of societal feature isn't it you know when if you you know you look at you look at the, the leveling up white paper last week and it's very much sort of saying oh the government will do lots of things but of course we're asking um you know, organizations and institutions and stakeholders to do to do much more after you know years and years and years of, of, of austerity kind of public finances and it's just we just live in a kind of in, in a crueler harder world now in, in many ways than we did in, in in the decade before this one just gone um and you know you, you, this isn't a political conversation about whose fault that is and then the economics of that but it does mean that it hard hard decisions have to be made and i think I don't know what the kind of I don't I don't I don't know what the solution is. I think it's probably not very helpful for um I think it's certainly not helpful for government and regulators kind of alluding to to an earlier item to to sort of say universities must do this and universities must do that um without really thinking about the resource implications and the fact that you know essentially it's going to be students students paying for it. I think also that um 
there is, I think, perhaps not a great understanding of the actual consequences of, of financial hardship still, both for students and, and, and for graduates. I mean, you see Kirsty Allsop saying that everyone just needs to stop subscribing to Netflix and, you know, then everybody would be, would be able to buy a house. And, and that is, you know, so self-evidently not the case. And I think, you know, it's, it's very much a, a broad, broad economic thing, a broad generational thing um, and, and something that will, will just sort of continue to be, to be a real challenge. Mm. So like a- so, like, I'm going to break all the rules and uh, do that thing where someone says, uh, you know, go and speak off the top of your head for an entire generation. But, <laughs> but I have this kind of theory that when t- times get tight for students financially, it's not that they drop out. It's not that they don't come to university. It's not, do you know what I mean, it's not that they disappear. It's that all of the stuff around, you know, coming in more often, joining clubs, you know, all the kind of what might be regarded as luxuries or extras, they fall off. And that be- that becomes a real problem for students and some disadvantaged backgrounds then in terms of all these outcomes, right? Absolutely, because, yeah, like we mentioned before, students who get involved in, you know, these activities um, are more likely to continue with the course. So when if they're having to choose between heating and eating, there's no chance that they're even going to be able to, you know, um, focus on, let alone focus on completing assignments, focus on even, you know, attending the classes um, because, you know, that you need to eat and you need to you know um live live comfortably to be able to engage in your studies so um this is you know a huge problem um and you know the 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 university can't be left alone in this they need that support from from the government then the government needs to have a plan and um because what otherwise what we're going to get is you know um students um trying to go for hardship funds and then not not being being accepted um, because, you know, at the end of the day, these student services teams have only got a certain, you know, budget to, to allocate. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, not everyone can can get uh, access to that. So it's it's important that um, we uh, we do support students, put preventative measures in place and, you know, maybe, you know, support in terms of looking at how we can um, put more messaging out around um, budgeting. Um, and, and I do appreciate, you know, but, uh, students who are in financial difficulties, it's not about budget but um, they, they do need um, additional support uh, to understand you know how to how to navigate a university and complete their studies um, and not and not suffer um, and that's where that support from you know academics come in understanding you know if a students are not attending lectures if students are you know not um, not not themselves you know how can how can people around um, the university make sure that they're picking up those students before before they think of you know dropping out so that's about it for this week remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks very much to Graham, Zaleka, Debbie, DK everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen and until next week stay wonky stay wonky